Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Hey Ian. Hey Otis, how's it going? Um, I have a little bit of the sads. Really? Yeah, um, so like the Giants traded away my favorite baseball player. Oh boy. Yeah, okay, so if you're going to laugh at a grown man having a favorite baseball player at home, that's acceptable. It is a laughable thing. I I will not laugh at that. Um, as you probably are aware, I am a huge hockey fan. So you have a favorite hockey and, player? And I'm like unbelievably excited about this season because the Maple Leafs will actually be good. All I hear is Canadian speak when you say things blah, like blah, that. Blah, 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 Canadian, yes. It's like uh, Tim Hortons, uh, the tragically hip. <laughs> right, you know about that. Yes, yes, I, I, I actually am a fan of many Canadian musical acts. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of ridiculous, right? Uh, but And also, you're, you're not allowed to laugh if you have a favorite superhero. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, but, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that, like, as I've gotten older, it has made me feel, we'll say, like, better and better to, like, reattach to the things I loved as a kid. Uh, and so, like, for, you know, so, yes, I'm, I'm a huge hockey fan. For a while, like, I, 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 you know, I think I probably went for about a five-year stretch without watching a single game. And now I try not to miss them. So, eh, if you want to judge, go ahead and judge. <laughs> I, I don't judge. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's part of what baseball serves in my, my life. There's, you know, I also, like, I watch it with my kids. They, they get attached to it, too. Yeah, there's, like, a, a bit of it where you, uh, like, the team is doing something smart by mm-hmm. trading away my favorite player. So, as an analyst, I'm delighted that they're, like, realizing that they have no shot at the playoffs and... As someone who spends time watching them, I'm like, oh, man, no more Andrew McCutcheon. He's so fun, and he makes fun of the other players when they get into fights. Um, so yeah, I was yeah. totally going to get you to name him. Yes, yes. <laughs> Andrew McCutcheon, you will be missed um, by me and by most of the Bay Area, I assume. Uh, so, yeah, I hear you've got some fun news. Yeah, uh, so uh, for those of you who... Uh, uh, who track blog posts and such. Uh, we published uh, a blog uh, out of Clover uh, late last week um, that sort of announced some of the, the uh, modeling results uh, that we've been getting with our machine learning platform, um, which, I mean, I, I, I have to say was a... I mean, the team that worked on this was just amazing, and it was a ton of work. Like, this was kind of like, you know, we, we probably built on a three-year foundation to, like, get the results that we did, and we're pretty proud of it, uh, and it's a really exciting result. Um, but also, machine learning models are hard. Uh, so I hear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's hard to make them work right, and, and, like, even harder to, like, kind of get to really good use cases in, like, in, like, real-world kinds of scenarios where, like, the whole thing isn't just a website. Um, but, you know, we've, we've made a ton of progress, and we're pretty proud of it. So you should go check out the blog post and read it if, uh, uh, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, there is, in my opinion, a great appendix uh, that uh, runs through a little bit of how we evaluate performance uh, on those models, uh, which, is a, which is a thing that I think doesn't get talked about that much uh, and really where a lot of the work that we've done kind of comes into play. Well, that's great, man. Uh, yeah, I know that that was a lot of work for you, so I'm, I'm excited for you. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, for, for me, like, I, I gave a talk to some Berkeley grad students this week. Um, they came into Patreon and we, um, we, you know, did the things, like, we gave a couple of the types of talks that you give to grad students. <laughs> Um, like, don't worry, everything will be okay. Keep your towel. I, don't there, panic. Yeah, there is a little. Yeah, I definitely had the like, hey, you're gonna feel some imposter complex. Here's how to overcome come that um, aspects to it. So yeah, I, I do want to like, I want it to be a reassuring talk. Like, um, 
there a lot of the themes of mine was like it's there's some stuff that people are like like some of the quickest ways to add value as a data scientist will not feel like they are core to your identity as a data scientist mm-hmm. and that I was like hey you shouldn't be afraid to do those things um, you should you know get on the interview circuit and write 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 SQL and make charts and make dumb graphs and stuff like that and talk to other people yeah yeah um, right yeah that was a big part of it too is like finding your collaborator yeah I think that data science works better in collaboration um, and then <laughs> there was like a, a, a moment afterwards where I found myself going in the opposite direction <laughs> of what my advice which is lots of engineering teams use Jira <laughs> and I don't you know People, data scientists often get to not use Jira. I have managed to not use Jira. So I just have to say, I saw this go up on Twitter, and I was like, something happened. So (laughs) what happened? Why don't you tell us what happened? Nothing really happened. There's no dramatic thing other than I was like, I don't want to use Jira. Can you guys do, like, just tell me what you did in a week? And they're like, why don't you just try to use Jira like we do? And it feels like a reasonable request. And I just got done, I have just gotten done telling a bunch of grad students that it's okay to do things that don't feel core to your identity. Although, frankly, I, right now I feel like adopting a guy who doesn't use Jira as core to my, <laughs> to my identity. Um, the... Like, I tried to change my notification settings because right now literally everything that that team does emails me, and that is too much. Like, that does not tell me the useful way, uh, like, the useful bits. And, like, what was on Google literally didn't exist as a pathway anymore. Long story short, I'm going to try to figure out a way that I can safely use Jira without (laughs) it overwhelming my life or taking up a large part of my day because I want to be useful to to my coworkers and the people I collaborate with. On the other hand, though, like when I put the when I was when I like yelled about Jira on Twitter, I got like lots of contradictory advice. <laughs> um, I got the like, and most of it was from engineers who all like it turns out have lingering resentments from Jira, uh, uh, like aimed at Jira. Um, just in case you don't know, like it is a ticketing, it like it, it's a ticketing system. It's like something that a manager would like build to like check what other people are doing so so it's a ticketing system but if you ever ask anyone they'll say it's a ticketing system but it's much more than a ticketing system and then if you ask them what the much more is you get a bunch of words that sound like english but are a little bit unintelligible it like i think in enterprise software like settings metastasize throughout a product and then you end up with like this. It does literally everything, but like it becomes hard to f- remember what the core, like had to do the core product stuff. Um, and that's like Jira is probably one of the best examples of that. Yeah, my my experience with it has been that uh, everybody wants like like so you state a problem, and then somebody says we can use Jira for that, and then you try to use Jira for that. And then you use something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, enge- engineers like engineers use Jira. Like everywhere yeah. I go, like eventually Jira becomes the thing that they track their work in. Um, like I think a lot of t- in a lot of companies, like they hire the engineers first, and then they hire the data scientists second, yeah. and then they go, well. <laughs> The engineers use Jira, and data science is kind of like engineering. You can just do that. Um, now, I'm not he- endorsing Jira as a good tool for engineers. I'm not sure that, like, actually the, like, the paradigm of, like, mo- like monitor and make sure that you're doing enough work is, like, the right way to do engineering. You do kind of need a way just to know uh, sort of, like, like what's what's actually in flight versus what's in the backlog, um, and and like what the status of things are, and to have people like actually be able to collaborate, uh, uh, like directly around issues. In, in theory, Jira Jira allows that. It kind of comes with a lot of overhead. It comes with a lot of overhead. I think. Um, I understand the, the the desire to have like a list of like things we are going to do, things we are doing, and things that we are, are done with. 
the problem I see is that like it just takes away. It's just like here's a task, go do it, right? It, yeah. it like to me, it like always makes me feel like if I'm a, being Jira'd at as opposed to just trying to audit Jira, it is like it takes away the conversation and the context and the like. Why is this good or interesting? Why why do you why do you, why would you feel like this is adding value and turns that into like. Check this box off. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've I've tried to use it for, or, or I'll say like I've I've experimented you, uh, with using it for for uh, data science workflows, and the hard thing there is is it just like like doing work in data science is kind of nonlinear. It's like you basically do a bunch of stuff that doesn't work until you do something that does, and so. Your task list basically just says make this problem solved, and then you have like a bunch of those things. And and if someone who and and like I mean, frankly, this this is actually something that is a real struggle. Uh, that like that is kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people mm-hmm. when they're basically like, well, like what are, what are, you know just write the subtasks down. And it's like, well, I don't know what the subtasks are. Like, I'm gonna try some things. <laughs> And some of those things, like I could probably write down for you the first two things I'm going to try because I know what those are. But then based on that information that I get out of those two things, I'm going to go try other things, and I don't know what those are yet. Uh, and, and so like that kind of task management system, like it doesn't really work for the kind of work that I do. Um, and, and like it just made it, made it kind of an awkward fit. I think there, like there, I think there's a real thing there where the the value of a ta- ticketing system, a tasking system like this is like it goes up the longer your subtasks take, right? And yeah. I think that typically the data science subtasks are shorter. Yeah, I've been asked to write a, like at other companies, I've been asked to write a spec for a project that actually took longer to write than the, the project <laughs> itself <laughs> because the project was like write a query make a dashboard out of the query and that literally took me like 40 minutes yeah. the spec to write that took an hour so like the prototype of the thing oftentimes is like actually less overhead than the the like the request to get approval for the doing of the work yeah I mean I th- I've been thinking a lot lately about like inverted workflows uh, and how like people want to try to to like put these processes around everything and say like okay like first you do this then you do this then you do this then you do this and and how that can like like lock you into a mindset that prevents you from accessing upside value later um like the 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 specific example that 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 i was kind of thinking about and, and this came up in in some discussion uh around the the uh the uh blog post uh, was there was a person uh, on Twitter who asked me, uh, you know, basically how, uh, like, how the work we were doing had been accepted by by uh, domain experts, uh, and and I said, look, like, it it is actually like it's a difficult transition for people to make moving from the pure like data analytics world to the machine learning driven kind of analysis. And like we spent a lot of time like kind of thinking this through and 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 trying to understand what that transition was at a foundational level, because uh, when you uh, if you don't know what the problem actually is, you you can't solve it. Uh, and what we sort of came to understand is that your kind of traditional analytics process is is very human driven. So like it it basically goes like hypothesize something filter you know filter the data somehow to like basically like be able to test that hypothesis and then and then make your your like inferences or 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 conclusions um machine learning inverts that process because it basically says okay there's a whole ton of data out there you're not going to be able to make sense of of all of it um and but what we would like to do for the domain expert is sort of focus their attention on the most important elements. And so what that means is you're, you're going to build your model, and then the filtering step comes first before you set up all, all of the hypotheses, right? So, so the model will essentially say, okay, like, these 500,000 records don't matter. Like, focus on these 15,000. 
Uh, and then you build your hypotheses around those 15,000, <clears> run your tests, and and do it, and then make your and, and then make make your uh, conclusion. So it's kind of this like inverted process. But like if you lock yourself in to like this is the only workflow that is going to work, then you can miss the forest for the trees. Basically, that's like uh, it's an interesting insight. I never like, I've heard people say you like use um, say that like machine learning is a discovery step. In analyses before, and yeah. I guess I'm guessing that's what they mean when they say that. That's probably what they mean. I mean, I don't know those people. So. I don't. I, you you do. But, okay, uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, but uh, it. It sounds crazy when you dis- like when when you describe it the way that I just described it is like well I'm going to use this gigantic algorithm to do all of my discovery and then I'm going to figure out what my hypotheses are beforehand and honestly when you the why does that sound crazy is because you're a human being where your neocortex is a tiny percent of your brain mm-hmm. and that's like actually the hardest part like doing all of the computations and for a computer doing the neocortex work that's is... That's all it has. <laughs> yeah, is, like, super fast and easy, and then it can present to you yeah. the things that then you can build your hypotheses on. But then you also have to, like... I think that's also interesting because that means you have to build the... You have to build the machine in such a way that you can actually build hypotheses off of it. Yeah. Which is not how I think... I don't know. Anyone does it? <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, that's no, that's unfair. Like, yeah, yeah. So, 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 you're you're right in that. Like, that's a hard problem. Uh, I, the way that I would actually state that is that's not how anyone describes it on the internet. <laughs> because if you look on the internet, like all of the use cases you'll see are like recommendation engines and ranking algorithms, right? Like, that that's what everybody talks about. And that's sort of the easy, that's sort of the easy ones. Yeah, right? and, like, those are fully closed-loop systems. But, like, 90, 90 to 95% of the problems that you would want to use machine learning for, like, don't look like that. Like, they, they are actually human-in-the-loop problems, right? So, uh, so, like, if you walk into a payments company, like... Uh, you will find hu- uh, uh, human in the loop uh, uh, sort of teams like working through fraud, and like that's a really canonical uh, problem where machine learning can help you a lot. Uh, but like, if you look at all the posts that everyone writes on Medium around this kind of stuff, like you don't see it talked about a lot. We have some of those humans uh, probably about uh, three hundred feet away. Um, yes, and, and the, like the the typical like fraud, the typical like how you use machine learning and fraud is uh, the machine gives you a credit score, and then you use yeah. the credit score to make decisions. Yeah, well, the credit score plus other information. Credit score right? plus like judgment. That's the an actual human like looks the at the key. credit score and yeah. then takes into account other things. Yeah, so it's so like you can think of the machine learning model as like distilling information down for you and. But the the human still has to, like, bring in context and make the decisions. Like, the computer can't know everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I'm going to do about JIRA, I think, uh, the, the, the options I have are, this is what I've been told I can do. I can either become an admin and master it, which sounds like a fantasy quest sort of, <laughs> like... <laughs> like an epic journey of mastering administrative settings or the other like piece of advice I got was just just give in like Jira's the boss now <laughs> um, if you try to make it do the things that you want to do you'll just end up a pile of resentment yeah. and that advice probably sounds like the best emotional advice um, but it also feels a lot like what they tell you um, dying of hypothermia is like uh, where you just kind of give in and, you know, it's okay now. You you are working in office space, and there's not even a broken printer that you can take out into a field and beat with a baseball bat. No. I'm, no. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I know you are. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that's, you know, that's what I've been thinking about lately. The other thing I've been thinking a lot about is notebooks. 
I, I use notebooks a lot. I, we use Databricks at Patreon, which, yeah, there's another episode we can do about how none of the data science tools ever are, it just works. <laughs> um, but I, I use notebooks a lot. I kind of, I kind of like notebooks. Um, but there's a, a presentation that uh, Joel Gruz gave at uh, JupyterCon, which is like, uh, I don't, I don't like notebooks, and I think that it's, it should be sung, right? Tell me why I don't <laughs> like notebooks. He went right into the heart of the beast and was just like, "Here's why notebooks are terrible." Um, and I, I mean, yeah. he's not wrong, right? Like none of the things that he mentions yeah. are are actually good for sure. Yeah. Now, now we should mention also that there was a flip side to this, uh, which is uh, Jeremy Howard responded to him in a very, we'll say, almost pseudo angry tone. Oh, I don't think I read that, oh, but yeah, I, I did yeah. see a lot of people saying like, actually, notebooks are good, and I, I yeah. you know, I, I feel like on the whole, notebooks are are more harm, more good than harm. Yeah. So, so, so Jeremy's response was effectively like. Uh, every Kaggle grandmaster uses notebooks. So, oh, that's the worst response. So, so it seemed. Well, I mean, hang on. <laughs> so, if anyone ever says to me because Kaggle, I'm, I am, I so, am just like, nope, don't care. So his, his argument was essentially that like it is silly to have uh, to to have a conversation around something being bad when that thing has has like. There's evidence that that thing has made a, a large number of people more effective at the thing they're trying to do. Okay, that the, yeah, so, that's 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 fair. Yeah. Right? Now, now one could argue with kind of like how he how he presented it because it it, it was very much like this conversation is not worth having, uh, which is I believe the reaction that Joel was looking for. And 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 if you go and read his presentation, which is like very 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 worth reading through, and I, I, I didn't listen to it because I don't like listening to things, but uh, but it's probably worth, like, I, I, I would imagine for those of you that are auditory people, like, it, it is probably worth watching the talk. I'm, um, I'm going to assume, here, hold on, Ian, they're <laughs> listening to a podcast. They're probably auditory people. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> also, now I know you don't like listening to things. Um, okay, so no, I, I, <laughs> I, I I prefer to intake information uh, through reading words. I, uh, that's that's just me, though. Just just like we'll come back to the topic. I promise everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it is so much like it is so much faster for me to. I read so much faster than I listen. Yeah. Um, video is just a wasted medium on me. Yeah. Entirely. So I, I cannot do videos. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't do videos. Talks are really hard for me. I can do podcasts because I listen to them at two x. Um, and and like I find times when it would be hard for me to read otherwise. So like I'm walking or like on a commute and don't have my hands free. Uh, but yeah, otherwise like I I prefer like reading to listening. I do podcasts because I enjoy video games and doing chores and cooking and things like that, so and there. I can I can actually learn other things while I'm doing things that don't require that much brain power. There you go. Um, right. So back to sorry, back to notebooks. Yeah. So I think like we'll start with the like we'll we'll do a little meta discussion here. Like I don't like X is bad. Yeah. Even though I I often say things like that because yeah. it's hyperbolic and funny, yeah. and I think that's what um, Joel Gruss was going for. Yeah. But it sets up the the discussion to be like, is X worth having? And the answer is almost always yes, yeah. right? When the discussion you want to have is like, here are the ways that X can look like it's helping when it's hurting, yeah. or here is who X is, works for, and here are the use cases X works for. Here are ways that we can improve X. Yeah, that's like that's the actual discussion, and that's the discussion that people usually want to have, um, even when they say like Excel sucks. Yeah. And uh, like they want to talk about what, um, why does Excel betray you in key circumstances? Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I I just want to echo that in like the strongest, uh, you know, basically like the strongest agreement I can possibly give, which is you know basically especially like our our community has this tendency to be intensely philosophical around the tools and the workflows and. Uh, uh, and 
and the definitions. Like, what is a data scientist? If you do this, you're 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 real. If you don't do that, you're not real. Yeah, they're trying and, to find natural kinds of things. Yeah, and, and and like and like to me, like I I I used to like those conversations, especially when you're when you're early on, can be like really fun to engage in. You're like, oh, I'm trying to find the right definition for something, but the reality is that like the world like allocates rewards to pragmatic solutions that work and uh and and like if you are like intensely philosophical like you know basically trying to trying to say like there is a hard line between right and wrong and like obviously like there there are places where that is true but like i'm just i'm talking about in like a professional like the way that you like go about your 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 work sort of scenario like all you're going to do is generate a bunch of conflict and not for any good reason uh so it's like one thing if if like someone is uh, if like if like someone is producing work that is misleading the business you want to have a discussion around that uh and if you can see that there's elements of their workflow that are that are potentially causing that like it can be useful to have a discussion around that but it doesn't necessarily mean that like they've made bad decisions. It means that like contextually, they they might have picked the wrong way to go about like this particular problem, even though it's it it, it might work perfectly well for other problems. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend the data science profession. No, not really. Sort of. <laughs> um, so I, I I agree with you that like the the utility of those actual discussions itself is often nil especially the like what's a real blah 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 versus what's a what's pseudo blah 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 like almost never interesting um the the part where that actually produces useful things is like you don't you don't often settle a decision by saying this person is right this person is wrong or this idea is right this idea is wrong in context like that can be pretty difficult to get to a lot of the time um but like you can pull out the like like if you're these discussions can be good for giving you an ideal of what a good workflow is like in most circumstances if you know your audience and your decisions yeah and then you can like then you can build a tool that has defaults that Put the right, make the right thing the easy thing, and then you have to have fewer and fewer of these totally, types of discussions. Totally agree with that. Like the 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 place where I'm kind of coming to though is essentially to essentially say that number one, like tools are not inherently good or bad. That is correct. They just have costs and benefits, um, and that and that you can't like those implementations. Uh, of like what the workflow should look like can't be absent of context. That is, yes, that is absolutely true. And I think the def- like ha- I my definition of a good tool is given that you know what the context is, like does do the defaults push you towards like um, decisions that you're not going to regret later. Yeah. So I think like Excel when I when I'm unhappy with Excel it is like I know the context is usually data analysis and the default is like you can edit the data and you can edit the, the syntax and it's really hard to tell the difference between the one and the other. Uh, and you can hide all of the assumptions that you're making. Yeah, or yeah, like you, it's all up to you um, and you're, uh, you're a human. <laughs> um, that, that seems wrong to me. Um, like the, uh, the work the tool should have an opinion about what's the best workflow and have suggestions about what's the default to go to. Yeah. Um, so that, to me, like, that makes Excel a bad tool for lots of different types of things. It's often an expedient tool, so when I'm in a hurry, like, I will use it as a calculator, too. Okay, so why do notebooks betray you? Like, why do they look like the right choice sometimes and they're not? Yeah, so this is, I think, uh, one of those things that's sort of, like, it, it kind of becomes important to understand the difference between an analysis system and a production system because like the reason that notebooks can can go wrong is essentially like uh, they're meant to be used as like uh, an interface into code 
Whereas, like, if you use them as, as like, a, to create a, a reproducible system, uh, you, you start to run into problems. Uh, and, and, and the reason is essentially that, like, structurally, so, like, you know, notebooks have these cells in them, and you write your code in the cell, and then you hit Shift-Enter, and it executes that, that code. Um, but on the back end, like, it's, it's, it's communicating with the Python uh, or R interpreter, like that thing doesn't know anything about the about the visual ordering of the cells. All it knows is like what commands it has been issued. Uh, and so because of that, your notebook contains hidden state. So in other words, you can run you can need like the cells appear in an order, but you didn't necessarily run the cells in order. And in yeah. fact, while you're prototyping a um, in interactive Python or in a notebook, yeah. it's actually really unusual for yeah. you to just proceed in simple, like, like, like from top to bottom. Yeah, and and so you know, one of the arguments that you'll hear from uh, from hardcore engineers, for instance, about like why like why notebooks are so problematic is that if you're working in the interpreter directly, then the uh, th the historical ordering with which you ran the commands is is all available there for you, right? So like you press the up arrow and you can basically see like I ran this and then I ran this and then I ran this and then I ran this. Whereas with the notebook, like at least visually, like to the user, like that ordering is not preserved. So like I can, I can like be working in a cell and then say, oh, actually like, I wanted to do a different thing up here, and then I go up to the earlier cell, but the but the information from the later cell is already sitting in system memory. Yeah, I, I like I have I have to say that's one of my favorite features about well, so as a so okay, right? okay, you know, so like so like that to me is like the fascinating thing that every engineer will tell you like that's the worst thing in the world because blah blah blah. But when you look at what they actually do when they develop, they do something similar. They're like, I want to define this. Thing in a function up here, and then I'm going to play with the outputs, and then at some point I'll get dissatisfied with it, and I'll go back to that yeah. other function. So, so, so I'm I'm not an engineer. I, I have no judgments around their workflows. I, I, you know, like working with engineers, like I sometimes don't understand exactly how they how they work um, because, like, they're they uh, uh, many of the best ones I know like work at a level of abstraction that is like legitimately just not accessible to me. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, like, when you're working with data, it is a very, very natural thing to, like, basically, like, like be, be approaching this in, 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 in a highly interactive manner. Yeah, right. because a lot of the times your data, like your assumptions, can be valid, but you're but not sound. Yeah, right. and so like, yeah, I want to jump around the code, and 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 I mean, I mean, for me, like I basically know, okay, like everything I do in a notebook, I'm gonna have to rewrite it for the production system anyway. Like I don't, like I will not treat it like it's production code. Although I know that there's a bunch of frameworks out there now that will allow you to do that. Uh, but no, <laughs> I mean, so so uh, so Netflix just launched a thing. No, yes, no, yeah, that seems like, like an awful idea. But um, I mean, hey, if it works for them, great. It, if like they can get around these issues, I, I mean, great. I I again, like I'm a pre, like I'm I'm strongly in favor. I even think that there are certain like pedagogical things that notebooks have that I really like. Yeah, but like it doesn't encourage you to think like there's no part of it that thinks of like encourages you to think of it as a production system. Yeah, and interactive Python is supposed to be for prototyping. Yeah, like that's that's what it does. Yeah, um, I like that there are net, like the part where I can see why Netflix is doing it is your ETL system is like is a production system for sure, but it should be it should have an accessible interface. Yes, like it should have. Some guide rail, guardrails, and but be in something that like your data science or even analytics organization is comfortable, yeah. like reasoning about. Yeah. So, so, so to me, that's kind of the big thing that like that interactive development process. Like, I, I find it very natural when I'm working with data. I don't find it natural when I'm building web applications. Like, it's kind of weird in that in like that scenario. But if I'm working with data. 
like the ability to like kind of hop around the code and and like have the state be preserved. Now, now I know that I, there's cognitive load on that for me that I have to remember like how something got to where it was. Uh, but like, but like that's kind of part part of the magic of it. Um, and and that's why for me like the I I understand all the things being being said here and you know Joel is not wrong. Uh, he, he's definitely like again. There's nothing in here that is wrong. I also think that a lot of the response to like the the criticism misses some of the point too. Yeah. Um, I think I love notebooks for prototyping. That's what I use to prototype. Yeah. I like Databricks a lot because it like allows me to pull in stuff from Redshift without um, a, like doing my prototyping on our event stream, which mm-hmm. can uh, like if I write you know there's as probably many of you know when you're doing stuff on lar- like large event streams, like doing a wrong join can actually make things worse for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the part that does annoy me about notebooks that I think even I'm not sure that like the presentation quite nails is there is a production state on an analysis it's called when you share it (laughs) and there should be like like the workbook um, the notebook workflow actually doesn't feel like it is built around that moment that is definitely true Um, and there's very like I don't know. I'd probably like make it so the share button may like on a notebook executed everything in sequence um, when you clicked it, right? Just and if it popped an error, then it would like put up a dialogue box that says like yeah. this shit ain't this 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 thing actually doesn't work, yeah. um, or something, right? Yeah. Like that's just my first my first clue is like there's not like the problem is that there's just no. Um, there's no opinion about the state of your analysis in a notebook, and that is the problem to me. Like, you want the ability to hop around until very suddenly you do not. Yeah. Um, and there's not, like, um, I don't think, like, data scientists should work like engineers in that, like, you should have an idea of when you are prototyping and when you are basically done and when you're taking feedback and then when you're changing the thing and, like, all of those states should be saved yeah. and marked clearly to the reader. Um, that, like that, that's the type of working like an engineer we should be doing. The type of engineer we should not be doing is working in Jira. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so for all you product developers out there, there is probably a product opportunity here, right? I, I really think there is. I think it's annoying that, like, I think that there, like, is you know, the, the topic of our last podcast was like, there's not a lot of product sense in data science. Yeah. There's not a lot of product sense in data science tools. Like, yeah. they don't start with who's going to look at this, like. And then work back to like what's the workflow that makes the, uh, the optimal looking at this. Yeah, it is like they basically all proceed from the point of view, the product point of view, that like, well, we're gonna have to sell this to data scientists, so we're gonna have to like give them tools that they like. Yeah, they like making analyses that'll allow them to make more analyses that'll make them allow them to make more sophisticated analyses. Those are the things they like doing. We're not gonna give them necessarily tools that. Uh, emphasize like how the sh- the viewing experience is going to be, like yeah. how the consumption experience is going to be. Even though I'd argue that's what you're, like that's what you should be trying to maximize for in your data science career. Like, and I'm not, I'm being very inclusive on that. Yeah. Like I think from the machine learning point of view, getting like like understanding what the inner like, what the outputs of your your model is going to look like, and then how that's going to be like ingested into some other system. That's as important. I mean, that's like, that's the most important. The thing. Yeah. That's the most important yeah. part, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I think that that discussion. You know, it's good that everyone's having that discussion, but yeah. that's kind of the part that I want to inject into it. Yeah, I, and, and like I I would agree with that. I think like uh, a lot of analytics systems probably miss the publish state. <laughs> That like that is the same as pushing to master yes. for like engineers. Like when you hit publish on a thing, is when this thing is going into production. And like if you do that in a way where like your code cannot like legitimately cannot be executed because the cells are out of order, 
you kind of want the build system to tell you that in some way. Let's let's like I'll put it a step further. Like most analytics products do not have us like a like a concept, a user concept of report and execution. Yeah. Right. Even though literally somewhere on a server, like there is an entity that is like this is the you know the stable URL where the report lives at yeah. and then here's all of the different like code and data states that it is lived at yeah. but like a lot of them don't bother to make that accessible to the user because they don't think of that like oh like this has now been pushed to master yeah. and now it's going to get comments or it's going to get bugs or it's going to get like stuff and you're going to have to like reason about the real, like the difference between the execution and the 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 statefulness of the report yeah um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's one of the things where, it, it, like, I see the market forces that make the world the way this is. Yeah. But I can't help but be annoyed by it. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I would say, like, I, I, I uh, that is a thing that I, that I, that I definitely agree with. And, 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 and I also, like, it, it causes me issues. <laughs> In my like day to day existence, so. yeah, it's like it's like if you lived in a house where you you know you decided to put the coffee table, yeah, like right next to the door, and you banged your shin on the door <laughs> most and days, and, yeah. and yet for some reason like you couldn't move the coffee table, yeah, um, that that's what the feeling is like. Yeah, so I I mean I think this probably leads into to to like kind of another almost like meta discussion around like what is so uh uh if if the problem with notebooks are are around the hidden state and there's and there's all these issues around like well is there like like your code needs to be executable because like when you publish it like someone is going to look at it and maybe do something with it um like 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 what is that really getting at I mean, he's saying that notebooks aren't good science because yeah. they're not reproducible. Exactly. Like, that is <laughs> that is the critique in a nutshell. And, yeah. you know, I, I, agree with, I agree with that. I also want to, you know, I'll throw this out there. Um, you're not doing science. Yeah. <laughs> Data science ain't science. Uh, our, my colleague Andre Bach has, like, one of the pithiest sayings about this uh, that I've ever heard, which is, a uh, data scientist is to a real scientist as a wooden duck is to a duck. <laughs> so, like, re- reproducibility is logplausible. Like, yeah. there's there's an aspect. So, so to kind of hammer that point home and just make it explicit, like, the reason people don't like notebooks is because they produce work that is not reproducible. Yes. Right? That That's essentially the critique that people have that it's very easy to write a whole bunch of code that doesn't run and doesn't reproduce the results that you created. Yeah, I, mean, I think other people have some comments about like the like often notebooks aren't well commented be, partly because it comes out of order. Yeah. Um, but I mean, eh, oftentimes code isn't well commented. That, like, yeah, <laughs> you, you've stolen my point. Yeah, yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry. Do you, know, you can say it now. Yeah, I actually think <laughs> notebooks are close to optimal in terms of like what the commenting structure. Yeah. Like they even let they let you do markdown. Yeah, Good I mean, God, that's, that's great. Yeah, you could do diagrams in the comments if you want yeah. to. Um, but like the reason why most notebooks aren't well commented is because humans are bad at, at yeah. documenting code. Yeah. So so. So to me, like the the reproducibility argument is is actually like the core one to understand and sort of unpack a little bit because there's a lot there, and also it's an overloaded term. It is an overloaded term. I think you there's several benefits that people are talking about when they say like they want you to do reproducible work. Yeah. And there's different levels. There's different levels of work that each of those achieves, and then. Like it is, it is one of those annoying English words that doesn't imply that there's an audience, yeah. right? That like repro- reproducible, but to whom yeah. is really important. Like most of the scientific work ever done was not reproducible before computers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so to me, that's the key thing, right? So step one is like, all right, if you're going to argue for for reproducibility, first define what it is we're actually talking about. When a scientist says, I want my work to be reproducible, 
uh, what, th- like most of the time, not not always, what they mean is I want somebody else to be able to run this same experiment and get the same result. Right, which is different than which is, probably... Which is definitely different than what an engineer means when they say I want my work to be reproducible. Because what they mean is I would like my code to execute in exactly the same way every time. Right. Like, the there's unit tests that are set up on an engineer's code, and they're like, no, it's not that I want the, like, it's not that I want the, don't want it to be directionally the same or yeah. have the same takeaways. It is, like, literally when... The exact same thing has to happen every time. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, scientists want that, too, in a sense that, like, if the inputs were the same, they would want the outputs to be the same. Um, that's not yeah, but that's not generally what they mean when they're talking about re- about about reproducibility. Yeah, right. So so you can think of it as like there's reproducibility of the information and there's reproducibility of the machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and both of those two things are certainly important, um, but they are slightly different. So it, at least in my opinion, like. Like, that's kind of why we have to ask the question of, like, well, what do we hope to get out of reproducibility and maybe optimize towards that? Because to build a fully reproducible system in all ways is, like, a lot of work. Yeah, it's it's too much work. Yeah. It's, like, not economically or practically feasible. Um, I think, yeah, the there's reproducibility, like, meaning if I run the same code on, like, does it like get the same results I think there's like like you need like version tracking to like yeah. determine whether or not the result like if results differ you need to be able to figure out was it the code or was it the data yeah and actually that's a strong requirement yeah right like you uh, like if you're keeping track of what state your data was in on every single day like you know, people say storage is cheap, but they don't mean That's it when you when you add a cheap. requirement like <laughs> yeah. that. Um. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I mean, that to me is kind of the key point that it's basically it, it's it's a sort of understand that like reproducibility is a tool. Like people think of it as a goal. It's it's not a goal, it, it, at least when you're working in 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 a business context, right? So so in a commercial context, like reproducibility is a tool. Well, let's let's talk about the goals yeah. that you would like so the reproducibility yeah. is a tool. The goal you would have is someone else um, trust your code. Yeah. Right? That's one goal. Yeah. Someone else can reuse your code. That's another goal. Yeah. Like and, and you can you can turn this thing into something that runs every day. What you're basically saying like like why do you want reproducibility? It's number one, so that you don't have to do the same work every day, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it, like that's how you that's how you get automation, right? If your code is reproducible, then that workflow is 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 now automated. It's, it's automatable. No, it may it's not automatable. Actually, it yeah. may not actually be automated, but you have a pathway there. Yes. Like if if your code is not reproducible, you do not have a pathway there because it will produce a different result every day, and so like. You know, essentially, like then you would need to be rewriting it every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the second piece is, uh, 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 is that you need the ability to fix it when it breaks. <laughs> um, because if something is running every day and all of a sudden the result changes, like you've got to be able to to debug it. And as you were kind of alluding to, there's a number of reasons why something could have broken. Mm-hmm. Right? It could have broken because the code is wrong. It could have broken because, uh, uh, you know, basically because uh, 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 an edge case showed up in the data that it was not reflected in the original code that you wrote, uh, or it could have broken because like data is coming in corrupted. Uh, like there, there, there's lots of reasons for that. And if you don't have the reproducible parts of the system, like it, it basically becomes very difficult to debug. Right. So the other the other part about reproducibility is document is actually documentation. Yeah. And, and so tests. And tests. Although, I, I like I think documentation would be more of a requirement than tests. Yeah. See, we disagree on that. Um, I, I I I view it completely flipped. I would I would have tests over documentation any day. I mean, uh, tests are definitely a form of documentation. Yeah. So I would. 
<laughs> um, can argue semantics with me? <laughs> yes. Um, so I I think reproducible always like has like like it's an arbitrary thing. Um, even automatable is an arbitrary thing. Yeah. With regard to a decision, with regard to a state change in a machine, with regard to yeah. like um, there's something that you're using it for. So you have to have like evidence of what the the decision or the state change in a machine was based on. Yeah. Like and then you have to work backwards to like okay, like what changed in the code or what changed in the data. Yeah. Um so that the, at least some like some evidence about what you're using it for is what you have to start with in order to do the thing to where you're tracing backwards to yeah. what the root, roots of the thing was doing. Yeah, and and like I feel like that that's really the key point. Is like you want reproducibility so that your product keeps working, right? And so like you need to build the reproducible aspects in, like in service of that. That means like so like full reproducibility would require you to have available all of the data and the entire state of like your entire system and all the inputs and like everything at a given moment in time, like, the amount of work that is is enormous, and your storage cost would certainly, like, grow exponentially. Yeah. Uh, and storage is cheap, but not that cheap. Um, you know, whereas if you're basically saying, okay, the thing I want to be able to do is, number one, have confidence that, that the variability of the outputs is relatively low, so that, like, other people look at this and say, okay, yeah, I can kind of see what this is doing. And then number two, like, when it does go wrong, like, be able to identify, like, which part of the system actually failed mm -hmm. uh, and fix it. Like, there are, there's a finite number of things you could do to, like, to, like make that happen. And they depend on your audience and how much they're willing yeah. to trust in that whole system. Yeah. I think that's another, you know, another thing we haven't really gotten to yet is who can reproduce it, yeah. right? Um, so re reproducible to me is fairly, like that's a low bar to get by, mm -hmm. sometimes, hopefully. Um, but sometimes, like a, like a lot of the cases we're talking about is like, I want you to trust what this machine does, whether mm -hmm. it's a report or uh, an algorithm. And you, there's like, it matters who the, the you is. Yeah. So a lot of times people want to be able to reproduce your results in Excel from some piece of code and sometimes that's doable Yeah. Um, like if they just want to be like oh do these things all add up to if I divide them this way does it add up to that Yeah. Um, are they able to check it like but sometimes that's sometimes that's harder to achieve I think um, that like that's another of the notebooks problems right is yeah. that a lot of those results are not reproducible by other data scientists, but even when you do the notebooks right, they're not necessarily reproducible to the audience that cares about your result. Yeah, like like a PM is not necessarily going to be able to execute that code. Or access it. Or access it. Like, depending also, on how you set up your notebook server, yeah, right? Like, yeah, and like, you know, certainly you're, uh, like, like and, and then you think about all the other people. It's like growth marketers, sales folks, like, it's like you kind of work your way sort of up that stack and yeah like I think like you'll just never get reproducibility across all audiences like you have to choose I have a question for you would we have better more reproducible results if software companies didn't sell things by the seat that's interesting yeah, I, I mean I, I maybe right like maybe. this the like in order to use most of these, these yeah. things, you have to sell a license. Yeah, it's like someone's got to hold a license for it. Right, and some of them have yeah. like a distinction between like the analyst role and the and the consumer yeah, role, but like, like it's all fairly arbitrary when it comes well, to... And like a bunch of those tools are so expensive that like you wouldn't want to buy a seat unless somebody is actually going to use it. I will not tell you which of the ones that we like. <laughs> there are definitely software companies out there, especially analytic software companies that are probably like being like, there's one seat at a company and everybody shares the login yeah. because they're so expensive. Yes. Yeah, yeah and I mean uh, we can we can probably 
do another podcast around like business models, but yes, that that happens to be one of the ones that I have the most trouble with, like the the sort of the per seat model because it it does incentivize some of these bad behaviors. You can think of the like when you're selling analytical or data science software, you're selling like we want to make the information at your company cheaper. Yeah. Like that's the benefit of, that yeah. you're selling. So the restricting of seats is like a tax on that benefit. Yeah. Um, even though, like, I mean, look, man, I know, y'all got to make money. <laughs> <laughs> and much respect to those trying to make money. Yeah. Uh, but it, it does feel like it's the like it's a mismatch of the value to the price. Yeah. Um, things are not necessarily priced on the margin for those types of software. Um, anyway, re- like, so I, you know, we can, we, let's, let's summarize. Yeah. Um, reproducibility is, it's a big word that yeah. contains several values within it. You should be careful about how much of that, like, you're going to go for. You should identify, do I want reproducibility because I have a particular audience that needs to be able to trust this result and yeah. this is their, their requirement? Do you want reproducibility because you're going to automate like some aspect or the whole thing? Um, and it's not because you like it's it's rare that you want the full reproducibility yeah. where you're going to be able to pick that like pick a state on a day and reproduce to that yeah. state. It's not total like. There's probably, like, I know there's systems at Clover where, like, that is literally what it is set up to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in certain cases you may need that, but you probably don't need it your, everywhere. Your engineers are yeah. likely producing some part of your data set that, <laughs> that uh, they are unlikely to take enough precautions around, the like, preserving the, the stateful history of that data yeah. um, such that you could do that. Uh, yeah. But it's, you know, it, there are t- finan- mostly financial and legal cases where you need to preserve that um, that sort of like that sort of like we'll call it like zero degree reproducibility yeah um, but it's a high like it's a high cost activity that I honestly think at early startups not really not really yeah. that great um, the more the the bigger the data science team gets the the more the payoff yeah. on being able to reproduce things because it's easier for you to take parts of each other's code yeah. and build machines out of it. Yeah, I mean, so so if you're building stuff from zero, um, at least, like, the practical advice that, like, I could sort of give is essentially, like, so there's layers to all of this, but, like, if you start with version control yeah, and, and version control around all of the code that executes, so not just the script... Uh, like like not just the data processing scripts, but also the thing that executes them, so that you know what the ordering is. So 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 if you start with 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 version control and like your data in a database, like that that gets you probably like like eighty percent of the things that you want. Put your data in a goddamn database, yeah. people. Um, then, like once you've got that, if you then move towards testing. So like unit testing the code and and then validation testing on the data itself like that probably gets you the re- uh, like that probably gets you up to up to 95%. Then like you know once you start machine learning stuff like there's more things you have to do because like now the data is actually dictating the state of your code. So you've got to package, you know, basically if you're going to fit a machine learning model, you got to package the, the model configuration code and the data set that was used to train the actual model together so that like you 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 know what that is you do that you know you're probably at like you know call it 97 percent of the things you might actually want okay that's all the time we've got for today um, I had fun talking about that I feel like we sh- we should go back to the reproducibility well a couple more times we for sure will, uh, especially when we touch ETL again, because I think the, those two things are really intimately related. I, I really, like, I think there's there's a lot of engineering that goes into writing a dumb report, mm-hmm. and, like, making it a little bit reproducible pays off big, and making it a lot reproducible, not so much. Yeah. Um, so, yes, thank you for listening. Um, I'm Otis Anderson. 
Uh, you can find me at Old Jacket on Twitter. Uh, Ian Blumenfeld uh, at Ian Blue One. Um, we'd love to get like feedback from you. Um, especially love to hear about like um, reproducibility issues at your company or in your work. Um, if you've got examples when you really wanted it or when you, you built too much of it, um, both the underkill and the overkill, <laughs> um, go ahead and at us on Twitter at smalldiffcast. Um, and you can also send feedback to feed.back at smalldiffcast.com. Yeah, and, and we're hoping at some point to, uh, to, to basically do like a short Q&A at uh, at the beginning of each podcast so if you have questions like please start sending them over yeah send in some cues um okay so yeah stay stay salty uh data scientists